0: Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue.
1: Hello, hello.
0: And Alex Lawson.
2: Hi guys I uh, wanted to start out with a uh a news item from we we actually should have covered this last week, but I kind of missed it wanted to send uh thoughts and prayers uh regarding the passing of film director Joel Schumacher. He passed away last week, and the reason uh that I wanted to talk about it is because he 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 directed lots of interesting movies um
1: volume a couple between of tough like batman installments
2: yeah well like a lot of like
1: it was always I believe weird. one of which had had the 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 suit with the nipples, had the nipples. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. he was always
2: like weird, but still like very commercial, which you don't really see a lot anymore. But anyway, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because he directed two Grisham adaptations. Oh, right, uh, that are favorites of mine. He directed The Client uh, with Susan Sarandon, and Tommy Lee Jones, and then yep. probably more famously uh, Time to Kill, which we discussed on the yeah, that's uh, a good one, on the Oscars Love episode. It. Uh, So anyway, uh, I also have a uh, Joel Schumacher story. So he lived in the West Village and I was walking through the West Village a couple of years ago and I knew that he lived there. And I saw a guy walking down the street that looked a lot like Joel Schumacher. And I was like, that guy looks like Joel Schumacher. (laughs) And I have a pretty strict don't talk to the famous people rule in New York City, as I think most people do. So I didn't think much of it. And then I started to, I was like, is that really Joel Schumacher? Do I, and is I started to doubt. Joel, is that the Joel Schumacher? I was like, do I even know what Joel Schumacher looks like at this point? And then sure enough, as I was having this moment of self-doubt, some guy, like, I don't know, 10 yards up the street, walking in the other direction goes, hey, Joel Schumacher. And Joel Schumacher <laughs> just kind of like waved at him and went about his day. I really so, like that uh, that's
0: the level of interaction in New York City. That you just it. you sort of see him. You might, might do a shout out, but that's about it.
2: Yes. So anyway, uh, Joel Schumacher, T's and P's, hugs and hand pounds. Uh, we'll miss you.
1: Yes. Thoughts and prayers indeed. Uh, we have a pretty good show this week. Uh, Alex and I talked to John Hill, one of our reporters here at Law360, about a big ruling about the, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a very interesting Supreme Court ruling about the constitutionality of That agency that might have some ripple effects uh, in in some other regulatory agencies. Um, Very interesting chat with John. Yeah,
0: it's a a real Supreme Court heavy show we have today, but not as heavy as we maybe would have thought because we're recording this on... The beginning of July, and the Supreme Court's not done with our term yet. I
1: did really see uh, our our sister show, uh, the term. Their latest uh, show was titled "Where Are All the Opinions," which I really, really Look, enjoyed.
0: When a name really fits, it really fits. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's
1: there's there's big trying to finish
2: my term paper at the end of the semester right. vibes from the from the Supreme Court right now. Yeah. So yeah, as Amber said, we're recording this on Wednesday. There are several big decisions that are outstanding. Um, we will kind of just take those as we can as we move into the Long holiday stretch here, but we do want to get into the news, and we are starting with the Supreme Court decision. Um, and it uh, was a really interesting uh, and noteworthy abortion case. Um, that Bill, I think you're going to walk us through. So let's get started. Yeah,
1: before we start talking about this, I would like to uh, register my protest that you two did not want to talk about the arcane uh, trademark law ruling that that was on my <laughs> beat. Um...
0: <laughs> hey, okay, I'm on your side, Bill. I think that's interesting, but was
2: domains, domains, or something. I don't know.
1: Booking.com, baby. They get a trademark registration. Turns out I it's mean, legal. I mean, there, Who we've knew? talked about it. We've
0: covered it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Um, but yeah, as Alex mentioned, um, probably the biggest ruling thus far this week was um, a ruling in probably uh, the, the, the most important abortion case uh, that the court has ruled on since President Trump appointed two new conservative justices to the Supreme Court, which obviously I, I mentioned that because there is so much discussion of of how abortion rights will be handled now that the court has swung decidedly in a more conservative direction. Um, this case this week ended with perhaps a surprising victory um, for abortion rights advocates. The court struck down a Louisiana law that sharply restricted access to abortion in that state. It's the We've talked about it the last few weeks. It's the it's the latest ruling in a term that has seen uh, several important rulings in which a key conservative or two conservatives jumps over yeah. and joins the liberals to to hand a, a major victory to sort of a um, uh, a ruling that that we would associate with the with the left wing of the court.
0: Yeah, and I want to get into sort of the makeup of how the vote played out here, but let's back up and and make sure everybody's following along. What specifically was this case about um, in terms of this abortion law that is now been struck down.
1: It's a case called uh, June medical services versus Russo. And uh, the challengers here were challenging a statute that would have required abortion doctors in Louisiana to hold admitting privileges at local hospitals. Um, That's basically a sort of formal relationship with a local hospital uh, that links the abortion clinic to that hospital. The challengers here say that this policy it, it, you know, in practice, when it's put into effect, uh, severely limits access to to abortion in the state of Louisiana, uh, potentially leaving the state with just a single clinic that would have survived this this restriction. Um, the Louisiana law was almost identical to a Texas statute that was struck down in 2016 by the high court in a case called uh, Women's Whole Health versus Hellerstedt. Um, in, in which the court said that a, a similar admitting privilege requirement uh, placed an undue burden, uh, which is the term of art under sort of key yeah. Supreme Court precedent, um, uh, on on a woman's constitutional right to decide to have an abortion.
2: The, you know, when when you look at the sort of long arc of abortion jurisprudence, beginning with Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade and then Casey. I mean, the it's sort of generally understood that you know, abortions are generally legal. And then it's always a question of like, what types of constraints can the state put on them? And then that sort of manifests all these other different legal battles. Um, And you've laid out exactly what the issue was here. But if you're saying that it was similar to this, or basically identical to this law that they struck down in 2016, the court is very picky about what is and isn't settled law. So what was the thinking on why it was taken up in the first place? Well, it's,
1: and you've hit it, you've hit the nail right on the head here that <clears throat> that was sort of what you just got at was sort of why people were closely watching this. Because, yes, it seems strange that the court would take up this case based on the exact same thing when they struck down the same law in 2016. A lower appeals court basically went against that ruling in 2016 and upheld this Louisiana restriction. Mm-hmm. So, uh, y- you know, when the court, the court then uh, took this case up and, it, and you know abortion rights advocates were worried that the court with, as I mentioned earlier, two yeah. newly minted conservative justices was about to backtrack on that 2016 ruling and potentially sort of start down the road the process of sharply restricting or even overturning Roe v. Wade.
0: But we didn't have that happen this week. Instead, we had Chief Justice Roberts join with the liberal wing of the court in this ruling. So why did Roberts do that? what What did we say and what did he say in this decision? How did we get there?
1: Yeah, so Roberts joined the four justices. He didn't he didn't you know, it wasn't this ringing endorsement. He didn't even join their reasoning uh, for for the ruling. He wrote his own little concurring. Opinion that joined Mm. the um, the liberal justices purely in the outcome here, but not their reasoning, saying that uh, that he was bound by the doctrine of stare decisis by the previous ruling that had struck down the Texas law to also strike down this Louisiana law. He made a point to say that he had, uh, you know, that he had voted against the 2016 ruling, that he would have struck down the Texas law and thus, you know, obviously would have struck down this law. but. He has to follow the rules. The rule is stare decisis. And um, so it puts this case in the context of an ongoing debate that we've talked about on this show and that everyone in the legal world has talked about, which is this, you know, back and forth grudge match over what does stare decisis mean? How much how much deference does the court have to give to its own previous precedents when they deal with contentious issues or things where the court wants to go another way when the ideological balance of the court shifts almost a philosophical discussion of of how does the court adhere to its own precedent. This case sort of jumped right into that debate.
0: Yeah, I think we've talked about that quite a bit this term. It's really been sort of the, the topic of the year. Um, and we even talked about in a in a different, unrelated case, Kavanaugh had written a whole thing about like, here's what the test for story decisive should be. So they're all oh, thinking yeah. about it a lot.
2: Yeah. Um. So I mean, what in, in in terms of the takeaway from this, you know, there's there there's always some next looming legal battle over abortion access on the horizon. I mean, if we if we try to digest exactly what happened here, is like this is they tackled a similar law that they did 4 years ago and they struck it down just like they did then what is the what is the read on 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 the sort of on what comes next
1: here yeah i think it was sort of for the for for folks who were analyzing this it was a little bit of you know whiplash you see the 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 if you're an abortion rights advocate you see the the court come out and strike down this law obviously that's the outcome that you wanted here it it has followed several other rulings the 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 big immigration ruling on daca the the ruling on lgbtq discrimination that seemed like liberal victories out of this term but it it came with sort of a as people analyzed it and dug into it it came with sort of a a more subtle uh loss for for uh the the folks that were pushing to strike down this law um In his very brief uh, opinion joining the liberals, Roberts specifically rejected a key piece of that 2016 ruling. He said that the 2016 ruling had said that um, when courts are analyzing uh, an abortion restriction, they they should weigh that undue burden, but they should measure – they should balance that undue burden against the benefits or the lack thereof that the restriction – provides um Mm -hmm. roberts this week said in his little thing that that ruling had mischaracterized um uh, the the key precedents when it comes to the stuff you mentioned casey uh which is is the precedent and so justice kavanaugh writing a dissent jumped on that and said quote today five members of the court reject the the whole women's health cost benefit standard this idea of balancing the um you know the burdens imposed, but or versus the the benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: this really reminds me a lot. I mean, you brought up DACA a second ago, and when we talked about that one, we talked about um, the citizenship question on the census ruling, and this seems to fall in that almost that same bucket where you have uh, some cons- more conservative justices siding with the liberals, but it seems like a short term victory because there's something in there that says like, yeah, but if we had another case that was just one drop different. Here's yeah, what we would they, do instead.
2: They they they'll hone in on, on procedural grounds yep. or some some sort of issue at it, the margins where this might survive on the merits if yeah, it were it, constructed it really feels in a like, different way.
0: Feels yeah. like you're reading a roadmap almost. Yeah. Like what we would really I mean, Roberts basically said, like, I didn't join in the twenty sixteen ruling, so presumably if there was uh, one that was slightly different from what we sure. visited in this case, he would be on the side of uh, of upholding some abortion restrictions. So It's it's like he it's like he gave sort of the the steps for what he would be looking for in a case where he would do that.
1: Right. And I mean, I think that's been the takeaway that when the the when you remove when you change that standard, the cost benefit standard is what people were referring to it as. Right. Um, It gives states uh, that critics would say that it gives states um, more leeway to pass laws and regulations that restrict access because. Under the old test, courts took into account that maybe you know if does does a does a restriction that a state creates uh, have no point to it, no benefit to it, other than to restrict you know to to restrict access, um, and and that that could weigh against that that. The, that could weigh against the the constitutionality of of the restriction. Now they can't do that. So the idea is here: states and uh, could look at this and say, "Well, okay, we can craft new restrictions that that uh, that sort of fit with this, and that then new cases will come up before the court and potentially uphold those restrictions." So as you mentioned, the the it's a big win for that that this rule was struck down, but. Um, for, For some folks, they view this as potentially, you know, setting up the next case, the next sort of the long road ahead for how these cases will be handled by the court.
2: The Supreme Court took a bite out of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau this week, empowering the president to fire the head of the Obama-era watchdog without cause. The 5-4 ruling stopped short of wiping out the CFPB entirely, but may have opened the door for new challenges against supposedly independent federal agencies. Here to talk about the decision and its likely impact is Law360 senior banking reporter John Hill. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you very much. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. So glad that we have you on. It's a really interesting decision that got both wings of the court pretty fired up, um, but let's start at the beginning here. I think most people know that the cfpb was a was a central part of the Obama administration's response to the two thousand and eight economic crisis. It extends consumer centric oversight to banks and securities companies um, credit unions, things like that but it was it was the subject of legal critiques and attacks almost from its inception but let 's talk a little bit about. How it ended up at the High Court this week what 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 case are we talking
3: about? yeah, so the case the case title is Sela uh, Law v CFPB, and uh, this is a California law firm. SeLA uh, Law was a California law firm that uh, was being investigated by the CFPB, and uh, as part of that investigation, the CFPB served document demands on it that the firm didn't really want to respond to, felt that they were inappropriate, and so they had to challenge them in court. Uh, And that ended up being sort of the basis for this entire lawsuit that eventually goes up to the Supreme Court. You know, that they raise objections to the document demands, and some of those objections include the CFPB itself is unconstitutional and so therefore has no authority to investigate us, throw these demands out.
2: I had forgotten that this all began with – the, by investigating a law firm, we talked, uh, yeah. uh, you, 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 you weren't here. On last week's show, we talked about the perils of being a landlord and renting to law firms. I guess these are the perils of investigating a law firm. <laughs> if you're an independent federal agency, you might open yourself up to a tax about your, about your charter. Um, but what, what was the crux of their constitutional argument? They were saying it's, it, it has too much power for an independent sort of government uh, wing?
3: Well, that, that, that basically is it. And this is, this is an argument uh, that really goes back to the very creation of the Bureau. Um, this has been raised a number of times in a number of cases in a number of places for years now. So this is not really something that just came up in this case, but is sort of the, uh, you know, the latest and greatest example of this. Uh, so the argument really does come down to the CFPB is too powerful for an independent agency headed by a single director. And mm-hmm. then that's that's really you know the the single director became kind of the right. uh, big yeah. objection that a lot of people had to it because if you look at the CFPB, it does have just one person at the top. In this case, Kathy Craninger who is now a Trump appointee, Um, but, uh, you know, other agencies like the Federal Reserve or the Securities and Exchange Commission, really almost all the other financial regulators are headed by what they call multi-member commissions, you know, boards, groups of of people who are appointed and eventually, you know, roll off as their terms expire. But, you know, you have kind of a mixture of
1: Republican and Democratic appointees. So the reason why we're talking about it this week is because we got a decision. Uh, It was a 5-4 ruling along pretty conventional ideological lines, what did the majority say here? Walk us through what the court's reasoning was when it came to those arguments.
3: Yes, so so the the central really holding of this case is that the CFPP director's for cause removal protection itself is unconstitutional. So, you know, the CFPB has a single director. This person is appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. However, the president cannot fire this person without cause. And it's that without cause part that causes a lot of consternation for people because it's it's seen as uh, taking away the president's power to execute the laws, to carry out his constitutional responsibilities, to make sure that the laws are carried out. And if, you know, you you don't have that ability to uh, control who is actually, you know, Exercising this authority on your behalf, you know, by firing that person, then you don't really have the ability to carry out the laws the way the constitution assigns that responsibility to the president. So
1: So that that was a that was a feature, not a bug, right? I mean, that was part of this, you know, we're creating an agency that's gonna have real power and be really independent. It's just interesting that that, you know, that is ultimately what what was at the root of of the problem here that, that got before the court.
3: Exactly. That really is one of the the primary bases for the CFPB's independence. It's that that for-cause removal power, which means that the appointee can, you know, do what that person feels is necessary to, you know, be a consumer financial regulator without having to worry about interference from the president, you know, without having to worry about making the president mad and possibly getting fired. Uh, You know, you want this person to have full latitude to do what this, what he or she feels is necessary. So the problem with that, however, that the Supreme Court finds is that this conflicts, again, this creates a violation of the separation of powers, that you know, Congress, in creating an agency that is protected in this way, has taken some of the president's authority away, has you know, unduly interfered with the president's ability to carry out you know, the constitutional responsibilities of the office. And that is really what the court agreed with in this decision, you know, agreed with that longstanding criticism of the Bureau that, again, for cause removal is inappropriate.
2: We will talk a little bit about what they about what they didn't do because this is kind of a kind of an interesting decision that way. But like we said, it was a five four decision, and that often gives us some pretty inter- uh, um, interesting dissents. You've said that the majority it was Roberts, right, who had the majority opinion.
3: That's right. Yes. Chief yeah. Justice.
2: So Roberts wrote the majority. We had Kagan in the dissent, um, who who took a different view. What did uh, I mean? What did what did she you know speaking on behalf of the of, of the liberal wing have to say about the about the about the majority holding?
3: well first of all i want to say that uh you know compliments to her for for her opinion uh very saucily written a fun read you know actually you know, <laughs> I, I, I had a great time reading that which is not I would say, you know, always the case i think you have to put a
2: dollar division. in the uh what'd you say stinging descent what'd you say <laughs> i i strident right. you use some <laughs> of yeah something
3: sharply worded
2: sharply worded there you go <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so so what did she say
3: so yeah, so her, her, her view here is that, you know, really this, this is nothing special. You know, the CFPB is new, but the idea that Congress can create regulators that are somewhat cabined off from the president's ability to fire them is nothing new uh this she she talks about the history of different you know regulators that have come throughout time you know not necessarily in the financial space i think one of the ones she mentions is the railroad commission from like the civil war era yeah. but you know <laughs> basically this is something that's been done for a long time this is not some sort of unprecedented agency you've got here and you know she she talks about the other instances in which the court has actually upheld uh, agency restrictions like this so so there have been examples in the past most notably in Humphrey's executor which is a case from the 30s where the Supreme Court actually upheld four cause removal restrictions placed on agency heads. In this case, it was the FTC at the center of this case. The FTC yeah. is a commission, and that is one of the the uh, again distinguishing factors that led the majority to rule against the CFEB. They said, mm-hmm. "Well, you're not a multi member commission; you're yeah. a single director led agency. Therefore, you don't get covered by Humphrey's Executor." But you know, Kagan makes the point that this is this is. Uh, really a difference, you know, that makes no real difference. Uh, that that there It's a are... distinction
2: without a difference. Exactly, right, yes. Yeah,
3: Yeah. this is not really that important. Um, and uh, there are other forms of uh, checks that exist on the CFEB that help to make sure that, that, you know, even if the president can't fire the director, it's not some, you know, completely, you know, off the rails, independent, you know, power nexus that is wholly un- unaccountable to anybody, you know, that she really mm-hmm. does not see that. And uh, you know feels that when you do start to put these really strict structural limits on, well, this is fine. You can't be multi-member. You've got to be this. You start to. Him the Congress in to a degree that you're actually interfering with a congressional authority. You're you're you're, <laughs> you're second guessing them in a way that's inappropriate, and you're also removing their flexibility to respond to changing circumstances. Uh, in this case, you know Congress felt a need to respond to the financial crisis by creating the CFPB. If you don't have that flexibility, well, then who knows what kind of situation we might encounter in the future where suddenly you've boxed the Congress in and
1: right. they can't do what they need to do. I'm not violating the separation of powers. You're violating, you're violating. the separation <laughs> of powers. Yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah. It's, it's um, actually, you
3: know, it's, you made that point, but it's actually, uh, you know, uh, interesting to see how much they do kind of respond to each other and where Kagan yeah. really goes on this long historical, in dialogue. this long historical tangent that is, I think she's trying to kind of, uh, you know, throw her weight around as a historical expert, you know, where, where I think this has often been seen as the high ground that the conservatives have held on this position, yeah. saying it's completely unaccountable and uh, unprecedented. She really tries to, to make that case that it isn't.
1: Yeah. So, John, we've been talking a lot about the director of the CFPB, the head of the CFPB, but we mentioned earlier that this case dealt with the entire agency the entire structure and uh we mentioned that that on that on that front it it didn't go against the agency that the agency itself survived this ruling so talk to us a little bit about that and about why that happened yeah
3: so you know there, there's two ways that you could you can approach a um a- Case like this, you could say, well, the the director is, uh, unconstitutionally protected from being fired by the president. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, we're just going to change that little bit of the law. We're going to take that part out and say, well, this director can be removed at will by the president. Or you could say, I don't have that authority as the court. I can't go in and and rewrite laws, you know, with my, with my pencil. So you just have to get rid of the entire thing, get rid of the entire agency, send it back to Congress, tell them to start over. That's the kind of the maximalist approach that I think some CFPB critics really wanted to see happen. Um, didn't happen here. They they took that more narrow approach, which is you know deals with the, this issue called severability, which kind of gets complex. But basically, they said, yeah, we can invalidate narrowly that provision of the law protecting the director. So that means that the CFPB itself survives this; that it, it will continue forward. It has its authority; it can continue to um, you know oversee the consumer financial industry. However, the director is now subject to at will removal by the president. We we've been centering much of this discussion about
2: the independence of the agency um, and that, you know, Kagan says, you know, you can say that, you know, you and the majority can say that this person has too much power. I say that there are other checks on it that kind of mitigate these, these concerns you're raising. But the, the independence of the agency was sort of a, that was part of the sort of billing of why creating the agency was so important to have it untethered from political interests with the, um, you know, with the understanding that agencies like this can survive, but maybe that the president exerts a little more power over their leadership, I want to talk a little bit about the the attorneys you've spoken to about, you know, what this means for other somewhat similarly situated oversight agencies, independent agencies, and whether those agencies are now vulnerable to a legal challenge in light of this opinion. What do, what are people saying about that?
3: Well, so for, for, Specifically the CFPB. Um, I, I think one yeah. of the things that they talk about is that, you know, the director currently is a Trump appointee. The president is still Donald Trump. So, you know, there's not going to be much difference. You know, day to day, the person is aligned with the president, so you're not going to have really this issue. It's not that Trump wants to fire the director of the CFPB and so right. this it's not, now- it's,
2: yeah. it's not an active dispute between Trump and the head of the agency at this point, yes. Right,
3: and in fact, that was one of the reasons why people who defend the CFPB say this case shouldn't have been heard at all. But, sure. you know, so, so from going forward, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference day to day in that respect. Um, you know, in the future, uh, it makes it very likely that she might lose her job if the president doesn't win re-election in 2020. 2020. 2020, which could then take it back in a direction that is more, um, you know, seen as consumer-friendly, industry, um, you know, hostile. Uh, So so that that could make a difference going forward, uh, you know, starting next year, that we could actually see another swing back to a more Um, you know, tough on Wall Street kind of industry. So for other agencies, you know, the the most obvious one is the Federal Housing Finance Agency, the FHFA, which is another 2008 financial crisis era creation uh, that is structured very similar to the CFPB in that it has a single director at the top who also has this four cause removal. This has been brought up in a challenge to them um, by people who don't like what the FHFA has done with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the uh, government-sponsored entities that, that it regulates. And, uh, that agency most likely will not be able to keep that four-cause removal provision intact following yeah. this. And in fact, the Supreme Court, uh, said that they're, I guess today on, on you know, when recording this, or are supposed to be having a conference where they may decide what to do with a case that presents that question. Uh, okay. so, so they, they are kind of the most obvious, you know, impact for this, uh, decision. But then so for the other agencies that are, that are multi-member commissions, uh, you know, this decision does raise the question of, well, um, they do fall under the category of multi-member commissions, so you'd think they'd be covered by Humphrey's executor. Mm-hmm. However, the way the court dealt with that, you know, 1935 precedent in this case, limited it to the, in a degree that then makes you wonder if, well, does Humphrey's executor even cover them? So, mm-hmm. you know, really the, the, Thing that, that it comes down to is this question of like, do they wield substantial executive power or not? And that yeah. is that is what the the um, you know majority here is saying that is in part you know built into the Humphreys executive exception that an agency cannot be uh, wielding substantial executive power, or then it's starting to infringe on the president's authority if you can't remove right. that person. Hey. However, you know, look at the Federal Reserve, look at the SEC, look at any of these other major regulators. You'd be hard pressed to say that they don't actually wield some kind of executive power because of their rulemaking ability and their ability to bring enforcement actions.
2: Is there a sense, John, and I don't know if this came up in the people you in, in, in the conversations you had with people who were tracking the ruling. I mean, is there is there a general sense that a ruling like this risks pushing nominally independent federal agencies more into the political realm, like making like is it? is the risk that the CFPB head basically becomes a cabinet member rather than a watchdog, or is it not so simple as that?
3: Well, that is certainly the fear of consumer advocates. I think sure. that there is, there is a, a, a strong concern on, on that side of things that uh, you will, by, by removing this political independence that the, the provision provides the director, that you make that person more likely to be soft on the industry if it you know so aligns with the president's preferences. Right. Um, and then as for other agencies, you know, that, that uh, if there is any effort to kind of push the boundaries of the decision, you then get into a, an issue where you weaken the ability of financial regulators to be watchdogs. And, you know, there there's um, concern of uh, among people who, like, for example, like the Federal Reserve, if there were ever some sort of challenge about can the president you know, fire the head of the Federal Reserve right now, well, I mean, that would be seen as very threatening to markets. There could be a lot of turmoil that's caused from that. Again, no one right now is really doing that as a result of sure, this decision. Sure, yeah. I don't mean to yeah. suggest
2: controversy where there isn't one, but I'm just trying to take your temperature on it. Yeah. Exactly.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that that it, it raises the question that if you allow this uh, case to get it picked up by other people to, to push the boundaries of it, you could see a gradual weakening across the board of agency independence in a way that I think many you know progressives would feel is, uh, is going to be quite detrimental to the you know, average person.
2: Uh, it's a fascinating decision, uh, John Hill. Thanks so much for talking us through it. It was great having you on the show again.
3: Well, thank you for having me, and um, have a good day. <laughs> thanks, John.
0: liked in our show is something offbeat, and um, we have one that surprised me that there were lawyers involved.
2: Yeah, you've you've really hit on when, whenever there's a really viral news story these days. but not intended in in, uh, in COVID times, but whenever there's a whenever there's a news story that really dominates, specifically Twitter, I'm always like, okay, well, that's pretty interesting. And then when it comes out that the people involved are attorneys or judges or whatever, and then it's just like, oh man this is this is going to be on pro se now. <laughs> By now, you've definitely seen the photos, the videos, the memes. Um, there were two uh, re- uh, residents of the of the city of St. Louis who pointed guns at protesters outside their house over the weekend. It was very bizarre. It was a little unsettling. And as I say, it turned out that they were uh, personal injury attorneys. So that's why we're talking about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the imagery was really shocking seeing like the pictures and and all of that of them standing with guns. And it was left you feeling really not great about the state of America.
1: Accidentally pointing them at each other, just looking like they had (laughs) never really held a gun before. Not not good stuff.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, basically St. Louis is like any other city in America right now. There are lots of protests over police brutality um, and protesters were marching to the home of St. Louis Mayor Lida Cruson in the city's Central West End neighborhood on Sunday. And at some point they got into a confrontation with two personal injury attorneys who are who are named Mark and Patricia McCloskey, who uh, emerged from their Uh, Frankly, ridiculous-looking house, um, and began pointing guns at the protester. Uh, Mark McCluskey had what looked to be a a semi-automatic rifle, and his wife had uh, the type of shiny, silver-plated pistol that I thought only existed in John Woo movies, but apparently exists in real life.
1: One Um, would hope that anyone would have the sense... Not to do this, but particularly someone trained in the law, you would well, hope would.
0: I mean, it does bring up the question, are there going to be any, is there is there blowback? Will there be any charges? Did they do anything they could get in trouble for here?
2: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, everybody wrote a version of the same story. It was obviously like it made for in- incredible imagery. I'm sure you've seen the pictures by now. Our own Peter Kang uh, talked to a St. Louis University law professor about the likelihood. Oh, and-, and I should say there are investigations underway by authorities of both the protesters and the attorneys. Uh, but Peter talked to um, a-, a law professor at St. Louis University who said that the homeowners are likely to be covered by something in Missouri law that's called the Castle Doctrine. Which is sort of like a version of a stain your ground law or
1: like the, the, the right... Sort of to, ironic uh, pro- because their house their <laughs> house looked like a castle.
2: It literally looks like a castle. Um, and it's basically like the idea that you know, you're know you allowed to, to defend your domicile with lethal, with lethal force if you feel some, some threat. And Missouri has specifically extended its castle doctrine to cover not just the inside of your home, but also your front yard, which may be covered by this. So that was an gotcha. interesting... Bit of, uh, um, bit of color in Peter's story. But yeah, um, bizarre scene. Uh, don't know how much else we can add. Uh, these people are personal injury lawyers. Luckily, nobody got hurt, I guess. Uh, we, can, we can say that. Small silver uh,
0: lining there, yeah.
2: Yeah, but you know, just uh, just another slice of the absurdity of the American experience.
1: Uh, uh, wild to see.
0: Well, that'll about wrap us up for today, I think. Uh, thanks for bringing that story, Alex. Thank you. And thanks for being with me, Bill.
1: See you again next week, guys.
0: We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, John Hill, and contributing reporters, Jimmy Hoover, Coe, and Peter Kang. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts that helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go over to our website, law360.com slash podcast. See you back here next week.